The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. How are we? It's great to see you. Uh, at the 9, I said welcome to the I don't have Labor Day weekend plans service because hardly anyone was there, but maybe this is the I slept in this morning service. So welcome. Uh, if you are new here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor. have the privilege of preaching uh, from the Word most of the time. I mean, I preach the Word all the time, but I preach most of the time. So uh, really thankful that you're here. If you are new and looking to find out more about us or get involved in some way, uh, the easiest way to do that is to fill out a Connect card. Uh, it's the, the blue and gray card in your seat back, uh, or you can just go to our website, mdcashville.org, and click on Connect, and then, uh, or go to the slash Connect and uh, fill out an online Connect card there. But we'd love to know who you are, how we can help you get involved, that kind of thing. Uh, I'll be at the back doors there when the service is over as well, and we'd love to meet you if I haven't met you already. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, please turn to the book of Acts chapter 9. If you are new around here, we like to preach through books of the Bible um, most of the time. So occasionally we'll do a topical series or whatever, but most of the time we're just plowing through books of the Bible. We find ourselves in the book of Acts, and uh, we're working through it slowly but surely. We come to chapter 9 today. Acts is all about what it looks like when the power of God is unleashed through his people, the church. So what we've seen already is God's power coming, filling his people and empowering them uh, to, to be on mission for him. And, and, and amazing things are happening through the book of Acts. But lately, uh, the last couple chapters, we've seen this, this opposition, this growing opposition to God's people, to the Christian church, uh, persecution and hardship. And with it is coming, oddly, increased opportunity uh, when, when persecution rises, when pressure rises, opportunity rises. Um, it, it occurred to me that the, the church is kind of like a dandelion. If you've ever tried in your yard, you see a dandelion pop up and you go to stomp it out and those little seeds just catch the wind and they go on and then you have a hundred more dandelions in your yard. That's kind of what the church is. Any attempt in history to stamp out the church has only in, uh, served to, to grow the church. I told you last week about Afghanistan and one of the house church movements there that had maybe 300 people uh, part of it before uh, the Taliban took over again and, and pressure increased, and now it's grown to more than 2,500. Uh, God's church is growing because opposition has grown as well. So uh, that's what's happening, and the gospel is spreading in the book of Acts through everyday ordinary people like you and me. As they're dispersed, as they go about their business, they are taking the gospel with them and, and proclaiming it, and all kinds of unlikely people are coming into the kingdom. So we saw recently... Uh, uh, the Samaritans, this group of people that the Jews hated, they, they, there was a revival in Samaria and people were coming to faith. We saw uh, this guy, Simon, who was um, kind of a, a practicing magic and occultism. He comes into uh, the, the kingdom of God. We saw uh, this Ethiopian eunuch last week, this, this guy from Africa who had come to Jerusalem because he had power and wealth and status and position and yet he was searching, he was hungry spiritually and God brought him into the kingdom. And today, we're going to see what is probably the unlikeliest conversion of all. The unlikeliest convert uh, you can ever imagine comes into the kingdom. And I use that language on purpose uh, because to be a Christian is to be converted. You, you, there, is no, there is no faith without conversion. What I mean by conversion is, is an about face, um, 
a transformation, a metamorphosis that occurs in our lives. Because Christianity is not just a mental ascent. We're not just acknowledging some things uh, intellectually. Neither is Christianity simply an emotional decision that we make. Christianity is not a matter of supplementing uh, our already over-busy lives. But Christianity means a reorientation of our entire lives around the person and work of Jesus. And so there's, there's largely three kinds of people here this morning. Some of you are believers. Some of you are followers of Jesus. You're Christians. You are converted, right? You can remember a time when you surrendered all to Jesus and your life is oriented around Jesus and you, you've surrendered to him. You follow him. You're a believer. There are others of us in the room or online who are not yet converted you may be on the fence. You, you may be sort of on the other side of faith and you're just knocking on the door or sort of kicking the tires on what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm so glad that you're here and you're, you're following along with us. And then there's, then there's a third category and these are people who we think that we're Christians, but we haven't actually ever been converted. We haven't actually ever surrendered to Jesus fully. We've, we've not experienced that transformation, that metamorphosis. And so in the story of Saul we're going to see what converting to Christianity actually means for us, what it really means for us, what we gain from a relationship with Jesus. And um, I'll just tell you from the outset, I will probably use the names Saul and Paul interchangeably because we're talking about the same guy. If you've heard of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, this is, this is the story of when Paul becomes a Christian. And a lot of people, you might have heard this, I might have even said this before, uh, that Saul was kind of his, his previous name and Paul was like his Christian name. Uh, and that may or may not be true. What's more likely is that Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was his Roman name because he had dual citizenship. But regardless, I'm probably going to interchange those words and that's who I'm talking about is the, the conversion of Saul or the Apostle Paul. So if you'll join me in Acts chapter 9, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to read the first 22 verses just to give us context. I think it's helpful to hear all of the passage uh, and then we'll break it down and kind of jump in. You guys ready to study the word? Amen. Let's go. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's an early name for Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord had said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I, I've, heard of, I've heard many from many about this man 
how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days... He was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am grateful, uh, grateful that we can gather on this Labor Day weekend, grateful uh, for the men and women who, uh, who have gathered with us, uh, church family and new friends and uh, those who are perhaps traveling through the area. I'm just so grateful that we can gather in person, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, and that we can uh, read prayers as we did and confessions that we can sing songs, sometimes with a full band and electric guitars and drums, and sometimes with the simplicity of a piano and our voices. Uh, we thank you that we can worship you. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and ask now that as we study this passage, as we look into uh, your word, that we might see marvelous things. It's a familiar passage to many, uh, and so I pray that familiarity does not breed contempt. Uh, but that we would be able to see and hear maybe a fresh perspective uh, and that you would speak to us, minister to us, uh, right where we need you to minister to us as we look uh, at this passage in the transformation of Saul. So help us now, help me, Holy Spirit, to rightly divide this word, that your people may be edified, that you may be glorified. Uh, We love you and we thank you for this time together and pray your blessing over it in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. Now, Luke has already mentioned Saul three times in the book of Acts. Once in chapter 7, when we learn uh, that as these people are stoning Stephen, who becomes the first martyr of the Christian church, that Saul is there. He's a witness to the execution of Stephen. In early, uh, the early part of chapter 8, we learn that actually it's Saul who gave approval for this execution. So it's likely that he was part of this governing council called the Sanhedrin. Uh, and then in verse 3 of chapter 8, we learn that Saul was ravaging the church the Christian church. Uh, This word that's used for a predator destroying its prey, right? That's what Saul was doing uh, to the Christian church. Here's what we know about Saul, just from the context of of other books of the Bible uh, and and so forth. He was a rising star in the Jewish tradition. Uh, Saul had been trained under uh, a very, very well-respected man named Gamaliel, who we learn about in Acts chapter 5. Oddly, it's Gamaliel who said to the Sanhedrin, hey, we better be careful how we ha- handle this Christian movement, be- because if God is not with them, it'll fizzle. But if God is with them, we will not be able to stop it. And yet Saul didn't really hear that. So he's successful. He's confident. He's passionate. He's zealous 
for the faith. He's a model example of religious practice according to Jewish tradition. Uh, And yet, he refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. And he wanted to eradicate this Christian movement. He, He took it on himself as a personal mission to stamp out this movement called the way with his own boots. So much so that the text tells us here, if you look again in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We, we still use this kind of uh, idiomatic language today. Like we'll say, for instance, oh, uh, if you're really passionate, let's say about, I don't know, CrossFit. He eats, sleeps, and breathes CrossFit, right? We use that kind of language to, to indicate that you, you're consumed by it, that, that this is your whole life. This is your identity in a way, right? This is Saul. He's breathing. He's consumed with. He's made it his full-time vocation to put an end to the Christian church. This is who he was until he had a day that changed every other day after that. And so here's the thing. There are three accounts of the conversion of Saul in the book of Acts. One here in chapter 9, another one in chapter 22, Uh, And then where he's explaining to a Jewish community. And then another one in Acts chapter 28, where he's actually talking to King Agrippa and sharing his story of conversion. So I think it's helpful, even though we're in chapter 9, and we'll get to those other chapters one day. um, I think it's helpful to sort of overlay all three of these accounts so that we can kind of make sense of what actually happened here. And and so here's what we find. Um, By the way, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. what does Christianity mean? Conversion to Christ means a new identity. And this is what we're going to see with, with Saul is a new identity, a new identity. Uh, he's on the road to Damascus, which is 150 miles north of Jerusalem. So he hates Christians so much, he's not trying to eradicate them just out of Jerusalem, but everywhere. And so he's gotten this authority, he's gotten these papers from the, the high priest to be able to go to Damascus and stamp them out there. So he's on the road, he's got some traveling companions with him, we don't know who they are, and all of a sudden, we learned from another passage uh, that it's around noon and he sees a bright light that's brighter than the sun. Brighter than the sun. So bright it, it blinds him and knocks him to the ground. Um, even coming out of the auditorium this morning, uh, it was really bright and it's like you want to squint and sort of look away, right? If you've ever come out on a, on a sunny day and uh, there's a lot of chrome and, and the sun reflects off of it, hits you in the eyes, this is what happened, right? It's the brighter than the sun and it knocks them all to the ground. And then he hears a voice, two times his own name in his own language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, in the scriptures, when you see a repeated name like this, uh, it's intentional. It conveys, in the Hebrew language, it conveys this idea of emotion, of passion, of concern. This is not, we know it's Jesus speaking, but this is not Jesus angrily going, Saul, like this is not like when your mama called you by your first, middle, and last name. Okay, that's not what's happening here. This is the Lord very concerned for him and, and, and passionate, passionately pleading, pleading with him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which tells us, just side note here, Jesus identifies with his people, which is such an important thing. Like, like I identify with my people. I have a wife and there's one of my kids, and I got two more out in the middle school ministry. And, um, and if you mess with my wife or any of my three kids, you're messing with me. And I'm a win. Okay? 
Why? Because I identified with them, because they belong to me, because they're mine. And if you mess with them, you mess with me. And Jesus says the same thing. You mess with any of his people, you're messing with him. Which is so comforting, right? Because we know if we belong to Jesus, that whatever comes against us, he's with us. He's for us. And, and whoever's messing with us ain't just messing with us, they're messing with our king. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Some of you are like, yes, and the rest of you don't get it yet. So he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because as you persecute my people, my church, you're, pers- you're persecuting me. And Saul, dumbfounded, confused by all this, goes, who are you, Lord? <laughs> he didn't get it. He's not sure. Uh, maybe he's like, I persecute so many. I don't know who this is. <laughs> but then Jesus speaks to him. And look what he says. I am Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I couldn't find a lot of commentary support for this, but I think the support is there in the language, in the original language. I think Jesus is very intentional and specific in his use of those three words, I am Jesus. Here's why. Because he could have said, I'm the Lord. He could have said, Jesus Christ. He could have said, you know, you know who I am. I mean, he could have said a, a lot of things, but he says, I am Jesus. We go back to Exodus chapter 3, okay? Uh, Here's a man named Moses. He's minding his own business. He sees a bright light. He sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. He's drawn to to the light like a moth to the flame. And then he hears a voice from heaven. And he asks who it is. And and what does God say? I am. I am who I am. We go to chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. Jesus is speaking uh, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, and they're pressing up against him, and they're, not, they're doubting him, and they're not believing him, and they say, who are you? Like, you're, you're a young punk. You don't know anything. And he says, before Abraham even was, I am. Exactly the same wording right here. I am Jesus. I think what Jesus is doing is he's showing Paul, Saul, who's this religious leader, Hey, you know that I am who I am? You know, Yahweh, this is Jesus. It's me. He's connecting the dots for Saul in a way that no one else could connect them. The great I am is Jesus. I am, and my name is Jesus. And it's in that moment that Paul, Saul, though he's physically blinded, he receives spiritual sight. And he realizes that Jesus is who he said he was, that though he tried to murder him, he's actually living and speaking to him even in that moment. And he surrenders himself to Jesus in that moment. We know this because Jesus says, get up and go into town, and he does it. He obeys him. <laughs> he is forever changed in that moment. What do we learn from this? Two points of application before we move on to my next two points. And I've, we're going to spend a lot of time on this. My, my next two points will be very, very short-ish. Uh, <laughs> I know some of you are laughing like, okay, you're never short. That's true. Points of application. What do we learn from this? Jesus can and does save anyone, even the unlikeliest among us. There's two ways that we can avoid God. One, as we know, is by being very, very bad, right? I'm going to be my own authority. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to reject God and go my own way. And I'm going to make up the rules as I go. And I'm going to do what I want to do. Thank you very much. I reject the authority of God. I'm the authority. That's, that's, that's one way we can avoid God. But ironically, the other way you can avoid God is by being very, very good. You can avoid God in your religion. Um, 
I think it was uh, Flannery O'Connor who, who said in one of her novels uh, of one character that the, he had a sense in him that the way he could avoid Jesus was by avoiding sin. And so in our attempt to be good, in our attempt to follow all the rules, we can, we can similarly avoid God. Being very bad, being very good. Saul was both at the same time. Right? On the one hand, he says, according to righteousness, uh, 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 according to the law, I was blameless. 613 commands on the Old Testament, I did them all. At the same time, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. <laughs> right? He murdered Christians. Okay, so here's my point. You think you're good? Paul was better. And he still needed Jesus. You think you're bad? You think you're so bad that God doesn't want you? Paul was worse. And God still reached down and saved him. It's in the middle, brothers and sisters. It's in the middle of our failing. It's in the middle of our wrongheadedness. It's in the middle of our stubbornness that God comes to us. I love this about the Lord, that he opens our eyes, that he opens our hearts, that he reveals truth to us, and he breaks in because he loves us. And every single one of us in this room who have surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Christ have moved from darkness into his marvelous light, as Peter says. For some of us, it was a floodlight, similar to Paul here, where we were walking in darkness. Boom, one day the Lord flipped on the lights. Everything around us is bright. We're blinded by it. We're like a roach trying to find a crevice to hide in. And the Lord got us and he saved us and we came to him. And many of the rest of us have come to faith more like a dimmer switch where slowly but surely things got a little bit brighter and a little bit more colorful and a little bit more, you know, we got clarity. And all of a sudden we look around one day and we realize, I think I'm a Christian. <laughs> I'm not really sure how that happened. But either way, it's the Lord who's moved us from darkness into his marvelous light. And he doesn't need our permission to do it. He simply breaks in. And when he breaks in, he changes everything. Now, the second point of application is that God is always at work in someone's heart long before they surrender to him. So Paul's transformation here, Saul's conversion seems very sudden, doesn't it? He's on this road, light, fall down, voice, he surrenders, that's it. Very sudden, very quick, very unexpected. But when we overlay these other accounts of the salvation of Saul, uh, Acts chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter 26, what we start to see is God was at work in Saul's heart long before this. Okay, in chapter 26, here, here's, uh, there's an additional thing that Jesus said that gives us help here. When Saul cries out, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says to him, I am Jesus. Here's what the account in chapter 26 also says. It's hard to kick against the goads. Now, all of us know what that means, so I don't have to explain it, right? No. We d now, you may have heard somebody say, why are you goading him or goading her, right? We've used, you've heard, maybe heard that language before. We maybe don't know what it means. A goad um, was basically a cattle prod, so today, I think they're more like electronic. You can sort of zap the cattle and move them where you want to. But in that day, it was basically a sharp, pointy stick. That was a goad. And if you saw the sheep wandering, as we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. If you, if you saw the sheep uh, going off into danger, you'd come around and you could poke it, prod it, cause it temporary pain in order to course correct so that it went back into uh, the fold. And so it's as if Jesus is saying to Saul, I'm the good shepherd, and I've been goading you. 
It's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? In other words, I've been, I've been the one at work pricking you, causing pain in your heart, in your life, in order to draw you to myself. How did he do that? Um, if you will read the accounts of Saul, the, or his, um, his letters. So the Apostle Paul ends up writing 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And if you will read his letters, particularly his magnum opus, which is the book of Romans, um, what you'll find is that Paul kind of alludes to this sense in which he was having a crisis of faith. Um, he, he says in chapter 7 that as he began to know the law more, he realized how much more of a sinner he was. So on the one hand, he could say, according to the law, according to righteousness of the law, I was blameless. I checked off every box of those 600 commandments. But it's as he understood the heart of the law more and more, he realized how big a failure he was. I can obey the letter of the law, but I'm failing in the spirit of the law. And so imagine for a guy who spent his whole entire life pursuing uh, the, 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 the pinnacle of his religious tradition. I'm going to do all the law. I'm going to study with Gamaliel. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then he gets to the mountaintop and he realizes it's pretty lonely up there and it's not what he thought it would be. And the more he understands the law, the more he realizes how much he fails at the law. There's this inner turmoil going on in him that, that he's not as good as he thought he was. But you couple that with the fact that he was a contemporary of Jesus, which means likely, we don't know this for sure, but likely he observed some of Jesus's teaching, perhaps even observed his crucifixion. Uh, if he was part of the Sanhedrin, then he observed the, the trial and was part of condemning him. And to watch Jesus die on the cross for our sins and cry out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was certainly a witness to the death of Stephen, standing there, gave it, giving approval for the death of Stephen. And to watch Stephen this man who doesn't have the education, who doesn't, have, he doesn't check the boxes like Saul does. And, and he dies with joy and with confidence in God and with peace. And he, like Jesus, is able to say, forgive them, Lord, because they don't know what they're doing. And here's Saul at the peak of his religious experience, frustrated, in turmoil, without joy, without peace, without what Stephen has, and Stephen's willing to die for this Jesus. There had to be this sense in Saul that it was eating him up inside, that he had to be asking questions like, has my entire life been a waste? Have I been, have I been climbing up the wrong mountain this entire time? And so while he's outwardly furious at God's church, inwardly he's falling apart. And providentially it's into that moment in a moment in time when Jesus shows up and he says, Saul, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? I've been goading you. I'm the good shepherd. Why don't you stop kicking? Why don't you stop fighting? Why don't you come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest? That's what's happening here. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, especially if you've come to faith later in life, and I mean like in your adulthood, whether it was college or in your professional life, you, you, may, you may know exactly what this feeling is. That everything you've pursued in your education, in your vocation, uh, some of us try to find our identity and our wealth or in our career uh, or, or in our relationship status or in the education we have. And, and over time, it starts to come up empty, doesn't it? And we feel like, man, is my whole life a waste? Isn't there more to life than this? And it's the goading of God to bring you to himself. Some of you even right now may be sensing that, feeling that. I've pursued these things my entire life, 
and I feel empty. And it's the Lord saying, come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest. So, so we see that uh, conversion to Christ means a new identity. And I, I, I recognize I needed to spend a lot of time on that. I got two points left. I got 13 minutes on my timer. I can make it. You guys with me? Okay. Secondly, I want you to see this. Conversion to Christ means a new family. A new family. So the gospel's made its way to Damascus. This is crazy, too. The gospel made its way into Damascus, which is in Judea, right? Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Damascus is in Judea. And why, is the gospel, why did the gospel make its way to Judea? Because Saul was persecuting the church. And so now people have gone to Damascus with the gospel. Saul is chasing them down. Meanwhile, Jesus is chasing him down, right? So now he's going to be hemmed in because there's Christians already there and there's Jesus on the other side and he has nowhere to go. And this man, Ananias, has a dream. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, a different one than chapter 5, because he did. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he also has seen a vision of a man with your name to come in and lay his hands on him that he might receive his sight. And I love this. Ananias pushes back. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the, high, from the chief priest to bind up all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and, and those of Israel. I'm just going to stop there at verse 15. Ananias has this vision, this dream, and uh, It's very specific. If you remember back to last week, Philip had some vague visions or or impressions from the Lord, right? Uh, The Lord said, go to this road. The Lord said, approach this this, um, wagon, essentially, right? This chariot. He didn't tell him all the details of it, but here he does. He he tells uh, Ananias, you're going to go to this road. You're going to go to this house. Here's the man's name. Here's his issue, and you're going to pray for him. Interesting. Maybe there's two reasons for this. One being, um, God meets us according to our need. Perhaps Philip didn't need that much instruction. He knew that if he said go, Philip would go. And with Ananias, he had to be a little bit more convincing. Okay? That's one, that's one possibility. But here's the other one, which I think is more important. Let's just say that he gave uh, Ananias some vague instructions like he did to Philip. And he said, go to this road. And he gets to the road and he says, all right, go to the house. And he goes to the house and he goes, all right, go in this room. And then he goes in the room and he opens the door and it's Saul. <laughs> He's like, oh no, right? You tricked me. So, so it's probably likely that he had to be like, hey, look, I know this sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy, but you're going to go to this guy who's been enemy number one of the church and you're going to pray for him. And so I love that Ananias pushes back on that. He's like, Lord, I don't know if you know this, but this dude has a reputation. Like he's been hurting some people. And the Lord did not go, oh, snap, really? Like, Holy Spirit, can you confirm that report? No. What does he do? He goes, hey, um, Ananias, I don't know how to tell you this. I'm God. I know. Just go. Trust me. I'm at work in him. I have a plan for him in the same way that I'm at work in you, and I have a plan for you. Just do what I ask you to do. He's my chosen instrument. And so what does Ananias do? He, he goes. He goes. 
He obeys. He goes. He finds Saul. Okay. Put yourself in this moment. Put yourself in, in the sandals of Ananias. This man has made the Christian church enemy number one. He's probably arrested, if not killed, friends of yours. You have left your home in Jerusalem to come to Damascus fleeing this guy's persecution. And now the Lord says, I want you to go to him, lay your hands on him, and pray for him. And you're going to do it. But imagine as he opens that bedroom door, all the emotion that might be stirring in his soul. Imagine the the heart rate, you know? (laughs) If he had an Apple Watch or a whoop strap or something on, you could look at all of his data and be like, holy cow, he's nervous to go in. And yet, as he go in, goes in, he finds Saul. And what's the first thing he says to Saul? What does it say? What's he call him? Brother. Do you realize how massive a deal that is? <laughs> he calls him brother. He says, you belong to the family of God. If you have surrendered to Christ the way I've surrendered to Christ, if you have given him all of your guilt and shame the way I have, uh, if you have trusted in him with the empty hands of faith the way I have, then you belong the way I belong, and you're part of this family. Imagine for Saul, put yourself in the, in the sandals of Saul. Here's this man who's been murdering Christians, and, and now he's met Jesus, and he's He's got to be full of guilt and shame at the, at, at the way that he attacked. And now the first words from, from another Christian towards him are brother. It had to melt his soul, right? It had to completely melt his heart. That, that because he has trusted in the perfect life of Jesus, like Jesus fulfilled the law in a way that Saul never could. Right? He was perfect, righteous, without sin, though tempted like every one of us. That Jesus died in his place for all of his wrongheadedness and failure and self-righteousness and sin. That, that Saul took all of that on, uh, uh, Jesus took all of that on himself. That Jesus rose from the grave after dying that brutal death. That he conquered Satan, sin, death, and hell for Saul. So that if Saul would place his hope and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone with the empty hands of faith, he would belong to Christ and to Christ's family, to the church. I I need you to hear this today, all of you. No matter what your past is, no matter how recently that past is, you too can surrender to Jesus and belong today. If Saul can come into the family, anybody can come into the family if they surrender to Jesus. Because listen, Christianity is not about good people getting a little bit better. Christianity is not about nice people getting a little bit nicer. Christianity is about sinners being cleansed and purified of their sin. Christianity is about dead people being brought to life. Christianity is about the broken being made whole. And if we could go around this room with the microphone and just give it to each one of you and let you share, those of you who have surrendered to Christ, and let you share how Christ chased you down and saved you and brought you into his kingdom, we would all be buckets of tears to hear of the beauty of the gospel and how it's worked in all of our lives. Because the reality is, no matter how bad you've been or how good you've been, all of us have been Saul. 
All of us, through our goodness or our badness, have been threat, uh, breathing threats and murder against Jesus. And he broke in and he saved us. He brought him to himself. We have a new identity in him and a new family to belong to. It's called the church. Amen? I remember very early on, it was, uh, gosh, the first year or two of this church, um, we, had this, we had this brother who, uh, he might have even been one of the first baptisms we ever did. Uh, rough, rough life, tattoos everywhere. He had one tattoo on the back of his neck that said sex and violence because in his words, those, those were the two words that defined his life. And he's in church and he's got his hat on backwards and he's got his tattoos everywhere. And we had another, uh, another guy, older gentleman who, who had been part of our church who had come out of a more traditional sort of Baptist church environment. And he's sitting behind him in the row. And as we're beginning music, uh, this brother's looking around, he sees the tattooed brother, and he's thinking to himself, what is up with this guy? What in the world? How disrespectful to come into the Lord's house with a hat on. And look at all these tattoos. And I bet he does this. And, do and he said, in a moment, the Holy Spirit stopped him and said, hey, he's here to worship Jesus just like you. And he was melted in, the, in a moment to think, this guy who's nothing like me worships Jesus just like I worship Jesus. He's, he's my brother. He belongs to this family just like I do. And it completely changed his perspective. And I say all that to say this. If we are going to be a people, if we're going to be a church that reflects the beauty and the power of Jesus and his gospel in our city, it means we're going to need to make room in this room, in our homes, and in our lives for all kinds of people who are not like us. Because it's only the kingdom of God that has the unique power to take all kinds of random strangers with all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different ethnicities and all kinds of different socioeconomic economic classes and all kinds of different backgrounds and pain and sorrow and bring them together and create a family out of the unlikeliest candidates. Because let's be honest, we're all the unlikeliest candidate, aren't we? Saul's healed of his blindness. He's filled with the spirit of God and he immediately gets baptized, publicly identifying with the one who saved him. Public, being welcomed publicly into the family of God. So Saul gets a new identity, gets a new family. And then lastly, all right, I'm just going to turn the timer off now because I'm never going to make it. Uh, but you're here and my mic's still on. So here we go. Um, conversion to Christ means a new mission. A new mission. You guys hanging in? Look with me at the second part of verse 19. Uh, it's, in my Bible, it's just above 20, but it doesn't have a, a, a number. Right? For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the same man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Conversion to Christ means a new mission. Saul has a new identity. He's got a new family. He remains with these disciples. He, he earns their trust. Uh, you have to imagine that when Ananias brings Saul into their church meeting, <laughs> they're like, uh where's the security team? You know what I'm saying? They're just a little on edge. And so he has to be like, look, I met Jesus. I saw him on the road and, and I've repented. I've trusted in him. And, and Ananias is confirming, hey, he's part of this family. He submitted himself to them, shared his story, heard their stories, learned 
from them. But not only did this gospel bring a 180 in Saul's life, it brought a 180 in his mission. This man whose sole purpose right, in life was to bring an end to the Christian church is now going to be used as an advocate for the church to advance the gospel. And he didn't waste any time in getting after it. The text tells us he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. And I have to imagine that his transformation was unsettling for the Jews, right? In those synagogues, they're looking at him. They know who he is. They know what he's done. And they're thinking to themselves, who could, what could have caused this transformation? And here is Saul, who has spent his entire life pursuing the Jewish tradition. He could have thought to himself, I guess my whole life was a waste, and now I need to turn the corner and do something different. But in fact, the reality was the opposite. His whole previous life had not been a waste. It had been preparation. He was perfectly equipped to go to these Jews in the synagogues and to confound them by proving from their own scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Saul could go to any book in the Torah, any passage, and go, yep, this one's about Jesus. Let me tell you how. Because what he had been blinded to before, he now saw so clearly and he couldn't unsee it. It's like when you, when you see the arrow in the FedEx logo. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you Google it later, not now. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, near the X, you'll see an arrow in the FedEx logo. And you're like, oh my gosh. And you feel like an idiot because you never saw it before. That's what it means to be a Christian. <laughs> that you see things clearly that you never saw before. And you feel like a fool that you missed it. But now you can't unsee it and you want to help everybody else see it. So that's what Saul's doing. He's on mission He's, he's opening up the scriptures and he's showing them. You know, Jesus says in, in John chapter five to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures looking for life in them and, and yet you miss me and I'm who they're all about. And so here's Saul trying to make sense of this for the Jews from their scriptures. Here's my point in that. If God has revealed Christ to you, he wants to reveal Christ through you as well. So every single one of us has a part to play in the mission of God. And if you want him to use you, he will but you might be surprised how he does it. That also means that, that the education, the training, the equipping, the vocation you have might all be preparation for how God wants to use you on mission. You know, I've heard stories of, um, of missionaries who are being taught by, uh, by former drug dealers who were converted how to smuggle Bibles because <laughs> they're really good at it. So they're using their expertise to advance the gospel now. And I don't know what training you have. I don't know what vocation you're in. Um, but it, it doesn't mean you need to leave it. It just means you need to use it for the sake of God's mission. Missions for everyone. He wastes nothing. Hear that. God wastes nothing. So your experiences, your pain... The trauma you've been through can all be launching pads for mission, for, for sharing Christ and the hope that you have in him. Your education, your training, as I've mentioned. Missions for everybody. And so here we have God using Saul. He transforms him right before our eyes from a persecutor to a pastor. Can't we marvel at that? Isn't that amazing? Of course, of course, God is going to pick a guy whose sole mission was to destroy the church in order to actually advance it. That's <laughs> just like him. And Paul had a really hard life, really hard life. 
Um, but he tells us in Philippians he wouldn't trade it for anything. That in fact, everything he had before he met Christ, he considered dung. He considered refuse. And he would gladly forsake it all for the sake of knowing Christ and identifying with Christ even in his sufferings. He went on to be used by God to plant churches, to write most of our New Testament. And he died a martyr. He had a hard life, but a meaningful life, a purposeful life. And I don't, I don't know about you, but wouldn't we rather, you and I, wouldn't we rather have a hard life with purpose than an easy life with meaninglessness? And, and so being used by God is such a gift and such a joy, and yet it can be painful and difficult. But God does not call us to easy. He calls us to be faithful. Um, so as we, as we kind of round the corner here, I don't have questions for you this morning, um, but I'd like you to take a few minutes and uh, let's just have a, a moment of silence. I want you to reflect on what, what God has maybe spoken to you through the text. Um, I am going to give you an opportunity uh, to participate in communion. Uh, and so the, the elements should be in the seat back in front of you, but, but here's how we'll set this up. I just want you to take a moment or two to be still and quiet before the Lord. Um, ask him, first of all, you know, do I really belong to him? Have I experienced that transformation, that metamorphosis? Can I say that my, my life, as, as best as I'm able with the help of the Holy Spirit right now, is, is oriented around Jesus the person, the work of Jesus. Um, maybe I realize I, I've, I've been in church my whole life, but I've never actually met Jesus. And today could be the day where you come into the family of God. Um, others of you might just be here because someone promised you biscuit head afterwards, and that's fine. Um, but maybe the Lord wants you to actually meet him and then get a biscuit. Uh, maybe there's someone the Lord's put on our heart or our mind who we think is that unlikeliest candidate for conversion. And, and listen, part of our prayer right now, because God is at work long before he brings someone to that moment of salvation, is that God would be at work, that he would be faithful to draw, to woo, to prod, to goad that person, and that we might be able to play a little tiny part in it, to speak to, to pray for, to encourage, to share Christ with. Um, so I'll give you some space and then here's what we'll do with communion uh, the, the elements are in the chair there if you are a follower of Jesus if you have surrendered to him you're welcome to participate in communion uh, opening is a, a bit of an art so there's, there's a, two thin layers of uh, plastic one releases the little cracker and one releases the juice uh, and so you can do that when you're ready as we remember that Christ was, Christ was broken on the cross to make us whole that his blood was spilled in order to cleanse us and to make us pure and, and forgiven. And so we're welcomed into Christ. We're welcomed into his family. We're welcomed into his mission. Uh, and so you're welcome to participate in communion at your own pace. Uh, if you don't want to, that's fine. If you're not a believer, please don't. Um, but we'll have a moment of silence, and then Parker will come back up, lead us in a couple songs, uh, and we'll get out of here, okay? Father, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for what you've revealed to us through the scriptures. Thank you that you are always on the move that you are pursuing even the most unlikely among us uh, and, and that you are at work to prod people into your kingdom, not unwillingly, 
but lovingly. Uh, And so, Lord, today I pray that if there's anyone who has not surrendered to you, that they would do that today, that even in their chair they could say, I've been running, you've been goading me, and I'm tired of kicking against the goads, and I want to surrender to you today. I want to turn away from sin, and I want to turn to Jesus. And, Lord, may you meet them there and, uh, and draw them in and save them and give them a new identity and a new family and a new mission. And for the rest of us, as we consider, Lord, what you've spoken to us, help us to be faithful to you in taking these steps of obedience, uh, walking forward uh, on mission with you. So we love you. We thank you for what you're going to do now as we respond to you in worship, uh, and we ask that you'd be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen.